Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Let's Talk Low Vision, sponsored by the Council of Citizens with Low Vision International. My name is Dr. Bill Takesta, and this evening we're very, very fortunate to have a panel of ophthalmologists who will be sharing with us the latest information regarding the treatments for different types of eye conditions. Our first speaker this evening is Dr. Alfred Solis, and he's a graduate of MIT. He has a private practice here in Pasadena, California, and he is truly recognized as being one of the best in the world in treating and diagnosing glaucoma and other disorders of the optic nerve. Uh, so welcome, Dr. Solis. Thank you very much for your time this evening. Uh, it's it's difficult. Thank you very much for having me. It's difficult to know exactly what uh, people want to hear. I, uh, glaucoma is a disease, as most people know, um, where the optic nerve is damaged, presumably by intraocular pressure, or certainly that lowering intraocular pressure uh, slows or stops the damage to the optic nerve. The Therefore, most of the treatments uh, that have that we're using are to lower intraocular pressure. Uh, eye drops can intraocular pressure itself comes from flow of fluid into the eye and draining of fluid out of the eye, and this uh, naturally occurs with every heartbeat. Uh, when the drainage is impaired, the intraocular pressure is elevated, uh, and uh, the by lowering the and if this causes damage to the optic nerve or if the optic nerve damage is occurring, then lowering the intraocular pressure by either slowing the fluid coming in or help the fluid get out is the method of treatment we generally use. So the issues in glaucoma in general are, uh, does a person have glaucoma? Uh, are they developing damage to the optic nerve? And then how do we lower the intraocular pressure? Uh, finally, can we protect the optic nerve uh, without having to lower the intraocular pressure? And there are certainly uh, some uh, investigations going on to try and attack the problem from that angle. What we have now are uh, a number of medications. It's, it's really interesting to try and say what, to try and talk about what's new. Uh, what's new since I was a, a resident in the 1980s is everything. Uh, in the 1980s, we had four drugs for glaucoma, one operation, um, and uh, nucleation, that is, removal of the eye, was common. Now we have uh, 19 different or 20 different branded medications for glaucoma. We have five different categories of medications. We have laser treatments that didn't exist. Um, we have um, uh, uh, surgeries that uh, using various kinds of implants. We were talking about that a little earlier um, to, uh, to lower intraocular pressure. Um, we have really expanded our ability uh, to treat the condition. As far as um, new medications, uh, I think medication development's heyday um, has uh, is over. I think we're we're uh, there are very few uh, new medications on the horizon right now. The medications that are being used are are prostaglandins have been around for about uh, uh, 15 years, uh, almost 20 years. Um, the uh, uh, carbonic anhydrase inhibitors and uh, alpha agonists and beta blockers have been around for even longer. The newest uh, um, 
medications that are on the horizon and not yet available are the uh, ROCK, rokinase inhibitors. There aren't any available for commercial use at the moment. There is one that seems promising that uh, I was fortunate enough to work on, um, but uh, it hasn't been released yet, and it's only beginning its phase three clinical trials. Uh, and we don't know whether it will be compatible with other medications or how uh, effective it'll be in, in uh, widespread use. But at least we know that that whole category uh, of medication uh, is uh, on the horizon. There's another uh, medication that, a little bit farther down the line, uh, which is uh, um, usually called the, uh, by its, uh, uh, well, it, it's, it's usually identified as adenosine, and uh, that may have some neuroprotective effects as well. Um, that is protecting the optic nerve without lowering intraocular pressure, but we'll have to see whether that will even get uh, to um, a phase uh, three study. The phase three is the, is the phase just before it's released to the general public. So in, in the medication area, those are the two that come to mind right away. Uh, in the surgical area of treatment of glaucoma, um, there uh, is a lot of activity in what's known as minimally invasive glaucoma surgery. Now, minimally, there, I have a sort of a prejudice against this because uh, minimally invasive glaucoma surgery, as the, it states, is, is surgery that you don't have to, to do an elaborate operation and uh, there are less complications and tends to use the patient's own outflow system. However, because of that, it can't achieve as low an intraocular pressure as the surgeries that we already have. It remains to be seen what, seen what the long-term efficacy of these uh, procedures are. Uh, among the, there's so many different devices that are lumped in this minimally invasive surgery. A uh, few of them are uh, canaloplasty, uh, uh, eye stents. There uh, is a titanium uh, shunt that's very similar to the eye stent. Uh, there. Um, uh, there's the trabectome, which has been around for about 15 years or so. Um, there are a num number of these procedures. They tend to bring pressures into the normal range, but as the advanced glaucoma intervention study shows, uh, many patients with advanced glaucoma uh, require lower pressures than, than uh, would normally be in the population, and so therefore these procedures may not be applicable to all all. Uh, all glaucoma sufferers, it may, these, these may be very valuable uh, for the early glaucomas or to reduce reliance on medications. We'll have to see how these uh, come about. Some centers are using these quite a bit and others uh, are uh, not using them at all. So we'll have to find out in the future how, this, uh, how these uh, uh, minimally invasive surgeries fit into our armamentarium of, of treatments for glaucoma. Uh, there are uh, a number of studies that are trying to compare these, and unfortunately uh, there are not yet enough to be able to, to uh, say for certain whether they're uh, effective. In terms um, of diagnosis of glaucoma, uh, we've, uh, imaging has been moving along, uh, and uh, I know that a lot of research, I was 
at the, the Association of Research of Vision and Ophthalmology, which is the premier meeting in the world. We have thousands uh, of uh, uh, presentations, literally. Uh, there, are, there are days devoted to uh, imaging of the eye, and in glaucoma, of course, imaging of the optic nerve. I don't think there's anything earth-shaking at the moment, uh, but we're developing a much better understanding of how the optic nerve changes and how the sclera changes uh, by using these modalities. I think that uh, that things like stem cell research, while they're very exciting uh, in theory, I don't think there's a lot effective being done with them as yet. I know a lot of people are um, using stem cells by, uh, in sort of a very crude manner. You inject them and sort of hope something good will happen. It may, it may be that there's something will, but I don't think that any of the uh, studies have really addressed on how to make stem cells do what you want. Stem cells, for those of you who are unfamiliar with those, are cells that uh, can become uh, other types of cells. And so that if you're deficient in retinal cells by having uh, a stem cell, um, you could create a retina or, if you, or, or cells in the retina. But how do you direct that cell to become a photoreceptor versus a, uh, a ganglion cell uh, or uh, an intermediate cell? This uh, or a, a retinal pigment epithelial cell. This uh, investigation is um, certainly for practical purposes uh, as uh, it doesn't seem to have borne fruit as yet, but certainly people are very interested in this. Uh, it, it might be easier to grow other more uh, uniform types of structures, um, such as uh, sclera. You might be able to grow new sclera for, for deficient people, or uh, perhaps even cornea, although the cornea itself is a complex structure, and that may or may not be amenable to that kind of therapy. Uh, Dr. Solich? You know, yeah. as it relates to the diagnosis of glaucoma, that probably is one of the most important things to have your eyes tested for glaucoma at a at a very early age. What what can you say about some of the new different techniques that ophthalmologists will use to diagnose glaucoma? I know that early years it was simply the air puff test and that was it, and now there's new things such as OCT, uh, what what do you recommend for the listeners that when they do have their eyes examined, what tests should they really be looking for? Well, actually, the, it, it's, it depends on how complicated you want to get. What we're trying to find out is, is the optic nerve damaged or is it undergoing continuous damage, I think would be a, a more effective way of knowing that. So I suppose certainly you would want somebody to look at your optic nerve with an ophthalmoscope in terms of uh, if of understanding the intraocular pressure relationship to that damage you would certainly want to know if the intraocular pressure is within the normal range now the average intraocular pressure for everyone in the world is roughly 16 millimeters of mercury although it differs in some populations a little bit lower in japanese and south indians and a little bit more in african americans but it's in that mid-teen range however in almost every study, we see that only 2.5% of the population have pressures above 20. So you would want to find out if the pressure is above 20. 
the problem is how do you do how do you know that your the pressure is uh, is correct and we have a number of ways of trying to determine what the pressure is uh, the definition of pressure is you push in and see what pushes back and in the eye two things push back when you push on it whether you push on it with an air puff or a Goldman applination tonometer a metal Shiatz tonometer or a dynamic contour tonometer there there is a, a pneuma tonometer we're using air there are a number of ways not air puff but air application there are a number of ways that we can uh, oh and the the, uh, uh, the McKay mark tono pen the number of ways of testing intraocular pressure the question is uh, have you got the correct intraocular pressure and it and there are many variables since you're pushing in and what's pushing back is both the cornea and the pressure within the eye which is what you want to know you have to somehow get through the problem of how does the the cornea uh, affect the intraocular pressure the air puff tonometer is excellent because it, it gives you an instantaneous uh, pressure reading the problem is it's way too good uh, as your your pulse goes uh, your blood pressure goes up and down your pulse goes up and down you're going to have various readings uh, and the air puff will be way too accurate you won't know where on the spectrum you are you at the bottom or at the top of how your pulse varies the intraocular pressure the Goldman applination tonometer which is we ophthalmologists have always called the gold standard um, and other forms of applination such as a pneumotonometer they try and flatten the cornea so as to make the pressure in the cornea the same as the pressure within the eye um, that's a great way to do it unfortunately if the cornea is thicker or thinner than normal you're going to get an aberrant reading um, uh, there are other methods such as the McKay-Marg tonometer uh, which goes out of calibration very quickly and so many different uh, different ways um, of doing uh, of uh, addressing the problem the interesting thing is that that we can use all of these things to try and understand what the intraocular pressure is certainly uh, our knowledge of the intraocular pressure is key to diagnosing glaucoma but it's not glaucoma it's only one aspect of the diagnosis glaucoma is about the damage to the optic nerve that's related to the intraocular pressure. People can have normal intraocular pressure and have damaged optic nerves. And these patients and patients, all patients, need to have their optic nerves looked at with an ophthalmoscope. Does the, the latest research suggest that using something such as the OCT is something that is even more sensitive than using the ophthalmoscope to look at the optic nerve? Well, of course, and, and so the, so the uh, you know the OCT is a uh, very uh, complicated, expensive instrument, and if uh, uh, and the handheld ophthalmoscope is easy, cheap, and ubiquitous. Um, however, the OCT gives you better information, but one shouldn't ignore the other methods of examining the optic nerve, um, including the GDX and, and HRT. This alphabet soup. Uh, actually refers to various technologies to measure uh, the optic nerve in different ways. So m measuring uh, the optic nerve with, uh, is, can be done by various technologies. The only real way to measure the optic nerve would be go in and count the nerve fibers, and they're a few microns thick, and you won't really be able to do that. So we use various technologies, including interferometry, polarimetry, um, and um, scanning laser ophthalmoscopy. 
So that's why we use the alphabet soup. These things are way, way too complicated to say. But what you're really doing is trying to get at how many nerve fibers you've got. You start out with about 1.2 million uh, in a normal eye. And you'd like to know if you've got less than those 1.2 million. And you can, there are various ways of understanding whether you've lost any. Since the retina is in, is in layers, you could measure the thickness of the nerve fiber layer. And that can be done uh, using the OCT. That really measures thickness. It looks at the difference uh, between two layers uh, where, where things change. It doesn't tell you what's changed. It doesn't tell you that that's the nerve fibers, but it tells you that here's a layer, and if it's the first layer you come to, that should be the optic, the optic nerve fibers, the nerve fiber layer, we call it. The GDX uh, is a different technology where it's called a polarimeter, and we have um, actually a combination of those two, but the polarimeter is looking at uh, the transmission of polarized light so you can sort of count the nerve fibers. Unfortunately, the, the polarimeter is subject to a lot of noise. So although in theory it's a perfect test, in reality it's very noisy uh, so that we have a lot of interference from other structures, in particular the cornea um, and other things passing through so that you, it's very difficult to be sure that you see changes. The HRT, or Heidelberg Retinal Tomograph, which is scanning laser ophthalmoscopy, is actually measuring the area where the nerve fibers aren't in what we call the optic nerve head, where the optic nerve leaves the eye. And that is an automatic, automated way of, what we, of, of looking at what we see with the ophthalmoscope. OCT has become the most popular of all of these because OCT can be used for so many other things. Um, and a group um, in Europe has actually married the OCT to the GDX, that is the nerve fiber layer analyzer, the polarimeter. And so actually you have, it, it, there exists a polarization sensitive OCT where you can actually uh, excise one layer theoretically and mathematically, and then look at how many nerve fibers are in that layer. However, this is not commercially available as yet. Uh, more and more um, work is being done on this, uh, and there was actually um, a very nice uh, a paper on that at Arvo this year. Well, so, this, this, uh, yeah, a lot of this just really shows, though, I think that for all of the people listening this evening, that when you do go to have your eyes evaluated for glaucoma, it is important to see a doctor who does specialize in glaucoma because this latest type of technology, this equipment, is something that really makes it more precise in making that diagnosis, and uh, they could monitor the progression uh, much better. Absolutely, because in the end, as I said, the disease glaucoma is the changes of the optic nerve. It's the loss of the nerve fibers. So it's key to understand how things are changing. And the, these um, various technologies uh, can provide uh, a sort of a hard copy that you, that, you can, uh, uh, that you can then follow and then compare over time. And that's probably one of the most important um, examinations that you can make. Now, Dr. Solis, one of the things that... Uh, I know that many times people are 
concerned about is the cost of the different eye drops. Some of the newer eye drops for glaucoma are as, as much as 60 to $90 a bottle. And as a result, a lot of our patients, they don't use it. Um, is one of the reasons that people are recommending or ophthalmologists are using these new surgical procedures is to avoid that type of uh, risk that the patient won't use the eye drops. In other words, our ophthalmologists leaning towards doing surgery first as compared to eye drops because of this problem? That's an interesting question. I haven't really polled my colleagues. I know that most of us still uh, prescribe medications because although surgical procedures are very effective in lowering intraocular pressure, they don't, they don't come without risk. Uh, whenever you enter the eye, you have not only risk of infection, but other kinds of complications such as bleeding and damage to other structures, even in the, in the what we call the minimally invasive category. But more important than that even is the fact that the patients themselves uh, tend to not want us to go ahead with surgery uh, when they understand the risks. We can't just go and say, oh, go and have an operation, you'll be fine, because we know perfectly well there's an inherent risk to surgical procedures. And so once you explain the surgical procedures to the patient, as you must do um, ethically, then very often the patient will choose to pay the 80 or $90, um, and often much more. I have, there are some medications that cost over $200 a bottle, unfortunately. So yeah. is, is there any other new developments? I, I have read uh, a while ago about a contact lens type of device that was going to be able to measure the pressure of the eye so that as doctors we would know what is the pressure throughout different times of the day. Uh, is that something that is still being developed? Yes, it is, and what's really interesting is that it's surely not ready for prime time. Um, I was very excited about this when I first heard it a couple of years ago, and finally, um, at the research meeting this year, there were a number of papers um, investigating whether or not this was really useful. And the sense that I took away was, no, not yet. Uh, this is n not something that you can just pop on your eye and just go about your business. Um, this is put on the eye, the eye has to be patched and covered, and it's not exactly um, something that would be entirely benign. What it does is it measures the uh, stress movement of the, of the globe, um, and it, it relates that to intraocular pressure. You never, it doesn't actually measure pressure. It measures these changes, these electrical changes. Okay, great. Uh, you know, at this time, what we're going to do is we're going to open it up to questions for Dr. Solis, and then uh, later next we will be having Dr. Diani, who's going to be talking about some of the latest treatments for retinal conditions. So if you have questions related to glaucoma, the treatment of glaucoma, the diagnosis of glaucoma, or even uh, perhaps optic nerve conditions, go ahead and unmute your phone by pressing star six, and uh, you could ask your question to Dr. Solis. Dr. Solis? Yes. Um, would you tell me what is what you think is a normal pressure? Uh, Very low. Yes. 
the eye pressure, what would what would be a normal pressure? Well, as I started to say, the only way you can talk about normal is looking at populations. The 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 average pressure for everyone in the world is in the mid-teens, low of about 14, high of about 17 in various populations, in the 14s in Japanese and South Indians, 17 for African Americans, around 15 and 16 for Europeans and other folks. Um, so that's average. But that's, of course, not what you want to know. What you want to know is what intraocular pressure is going to damage your optic nerve. And the answer to that is it depends on the person. The only real statistical def, uh, definition of abnormal is uh, the only definition of abnormal that's not based on a single person is a statistical definition, and that is that it's uh, uh, 90, 95% um, of people have to be normal, which means 2.5% will be too low and 2.5% will be too high. It's the old grading on the curve idea. Okay, so, so like 31 would be too high. Oh, yes. The well, anything above 20, 20 the 2.5% is anything above 20. Okay. Okay, it's too high then. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, it'll be very important that you have a glaucoma specialist who could help you to lower your pressure then. Does anybody else have a question for Dr. Solis? Yes, Dr. Solis, um, my yes. name is Mary Lou, and... Uh, I see my doctor every three months for my pressure checks, and my question is uh, my insurance company has uh, changed my uh, medication. They requested that it goes to generic, and uh, I've done that. Now, are there new medications out? I'm on uh, Tenoptic and Lumigon, and then I went to their generic, uh, and I'm wondering are there any new medications out for glaucoma medications that are uh, promising? Well, yes, there are. As I said, um, there are some in development. There are none that are, that are. well, I shouldn't say none. There are some mm -hmm. that are slightly different. Um, yeah. For example, the Lumigan that you used to take, and apparently Latanoprost is probably the one you've been switched to. That's the only generic yeah. in that category. There's a new one called Tafloprost, which has no numerical advantages for people, but is, is non-preserved, so people have a problem with uh, allergy to preservatives. Mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, use, can use that one. But even if you have the new ones, if your insurance is going to change you, they won't let you, they, nor ordinarily they won't let you use the new ones either. Mm -hmm. um, also, that's one of the reasons that, well, that's one of the things that slowed the development uh, is because the, the pharmaceutical companies realized that they can't recoup their investment. Also, I'm just curious, is it a good idea to refrigerate your eye drops? It's not a bad idea. Um, certainly, um, there, there are a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one is, of course, it, it usually it, always look at the package insert. Mm -hmm. But uh, one reason, one benefit of putting the drugs um, in the eye drops in the refrigerator is that when you take them out of the refrigerator and put them in your eye, you can feel to be sure that you got them in your eye and not on your cheek or ear. Mm -hmm. okay. not, not as, not as yeah. humorous as, as it sounds. No, um, I understand. Very good. Does anybody else have a question for Dr. Solis? Okay, great. That was uh, very, very informative. Thank you very much, Dr. Solis. And do Thank you, you have, Do you have a, a website or uh, contact information if anybody does want to contact you? We have a website, but it's it's not an interactive website. It's just to, to tell us where we are. Um, so 
uh, socalglaucoma at gmail.com um, if you have a, a general question. So S-O-C-A-L glaucoma at gmail.com. Great. Okay, wonderful. Thank you very, very much. Our next speaker this evening is Dr. Diani, and he is a retinal vitreous surgeon from a very notorious group here in Southern California called Retina Vitreous Associates. Many of you may know Dr. David Boyer and his group, and they are very much involved in many different clinical trials. And tonight he's going to share with us some of the different types of research that was discussed at the ARVO meeting, and he's also very willing to answer questions that you may have about different treatments for macular degeneration and diabetic retinopathy. So thank you very much, Dr. Diany, for attending. I know you have a very busy schedule tonight, but thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Bill. This is great. Um, if uh, anything is too fast or you'd like me to repeat something or talk about it in more detail, I'm happy to do so. There's just so much research and so much excitement in our field in the last year. I'm going to go over some of the newest trials that we've had results from and some of the things that are still ongoing. So one of the, uh, the newest treatments that we have available to us is an injection that became FDA-approved last year and became available in January for treatment of symptomatic vitreomacular adhesion. And what that means is when the gel, the vitreous that's in front of the retina, pulls on the macula and creates distortion and thickening. And if that pulling gets... Uh, enhanced, it can pull with enough force in some people that it even leads to a macular hole. And for decades, the only treatment option for this has been surgery, where we take patients to the operating room, clear out their vitreous, fill up the eye with a gas bubble, and they have to be face down for a week. Now, this new treatment, which is an injection, the name of the medicine is called Jetrea, J-E-T-R-E-A. Um, the results were published in the New England Journal of Medicine in August of 2012, and they looked at a number of patients that were treated with a single injection and looking at four weeks after a single injection how patients responded, and they found that there was a three-fold improvement in having that pulling of the macula released with this injection, and they found that these macular holes that always have needed surgery greater than 40% of them were able to close without having to go to the operating room, just with a single injection. So this is quite a, a miracle drug. It, it, the percentages don't sound so impressive, but it is when you think about the alternative having always been surgery. In the carefully selected patient, uh, and there's five criteria that the study isolated as being good prognostic factors, the success rate can be as high as 60%. So this is a very exciting and new development. Um, how this will apply to macular degeneration is that we know that macular degeneration is a complicated disease with very uh, wide array of variables that affect it. One of them has to do with the gel pulling on the macula. So older studies uh, looking at OCT, which are those pictures that uh, patients get almost every time they see a retina doctor that is a little ultrasound picture and shows a slice of the macula, those ultrasound images have shown that patients that have vitreous, the gel pulling on their macula, and also have macular degeneration, 
are more likely to progress to wet macular degeneration and are also more resistant to treatment when they have wet macular degeneration. So there are ongoing trials right now looking at treating patients that have wet macular degeneration and pulling of the vitreous on their macula to see if treating them with this injection in addition to the medicines that they're normally getting for wet macular degeneration slows down their disease progress and it gives them a better outcome. So this is something that hopefully the next time we have this conference we can have more results regarding, but very exciting. The other medicine that I'll move on to now is called ILEA, E-Y-L-E-A. This is a medicine that's injected uh, 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 like any other medicine that someone would get with wet macular degeneration. It's recently been FDA approved as of the last year. The two trials that looked at it for macular degeneration were called the VIEW 1 and 2 studies. They looked at 2,419 patients, and patients received this injection either monthly or monthly for three months and then every two months. So essentially after the first three months, patients were getting this treatment half the time that they would normally be getting other treatments, such as Lucentis. So one of the groups in this trial was also patients getting Lucentis every month. So they compared this new medicine to Lucentis monthly, and they saw that if you treated patients essentially after the first three months half as often, they did just as well. So they had just as a high uh, success rate as we've seen with Lucentis, and we have to assume with Avastin. This medicine called Ilea uh, works a little bit differently than Lucentis and Avastin. Lucentis and Avastin are VEGF blockers, and they work exactly the same way, although the molecules are a little bit different. This medicine is called a VEGF trap, and VEGF is, stands for vascular endothelial growth factor, and it's the molecule that all the treatments for macular degeneration dating back to the first injection, which was macugen, which we no longer use very often, all of them block this molecule. And ILEA, which is a VEGF trap, seems to have a higher affinity for this molecule, and in some patients may last longer. Now, that doesn't mean that every patient will only need it every two months. Some patients will need it monthly. But on average, when they did this very large trial, they found that many patients or most patients did just as well as compared to monthly treatment. So that really reduces the burden of these monthly treatments for some of the patients that require them. Those were the studies for wet macular degeneration. At ARVO, they presented two studies that were uh, groups looking at patients that were previously getting Lucentis and Avastin and were not responsive, meaning they were getting these monthly injections, but they continued to have swelling and or bleeding. And they treated them with this new medicine, and they found that many of them, greater than 25%, showed a complete response. So, again, it's not a miracle medicine, but it seems to have benefits in some patients. That doesn't mean that it's better than Lucentis or Avastin, but in some patients it may allow them to get fewer injections, and in some people who haven't fully responded to those, it may be uh, beneficial. The ILEA medicine was also looked at in the Copernicus study at patients with central retinal vein occlusion. That's when the main veins draining the retina get blocked, 
in the eye because uh, usually uh, the retina is uh, usually scattered with lots of hemorrhages, bleeding spots, and swelling. And they found that treating patients on a monthly basis for six months and then as needed uh, led to greater than 50% of patients, so 56% of patients, gaining three lines of vision, which once again is considered to be uh, largely successful for this condition. Moving on to Lucentis, Lucentis has also in the last year been approved now for diabetic macular edema. We're used to hearing about Lucentis for macular degeneration. Lucentis has also been approved for retinal vein occlusion that I was just discussing when the vein gets blocked. But up till now, we haven't had any FDA-approved treatments for swelling from diabetes. And swelling from diabetes in the macula is the most common reason patients with diabetes lose vision. So patients with diabetes can have severe vision loss from bleeding and detachments, but those are generally less common. Diabetic macular edema, swelling in the macula from diabetes, is the most common cause of vision loss. And in the two trials that looked at Lucentis called the RISE and RIDE trials, and their three-year results were just published in ophthalmology in May of 2013, randomizing five, I'm sorry, 759 patients. They found that patients that were treated with the injections had better vision compared to the old treatments that we had, which is the laser alone, and they found that the swelling responded uh, much better and more quickly to injections than lasers. Now, having said that, we continue to treat many of our patients with lasers, but often in conjunction with injections. It seems that these injections have a large role and appear to be very effective in diabetic macular edema. Unfortunately, now we have an FDA-approved treatment. The ILEA medicine that I was mentioning is currently being studied for diabetic macular edema, and we are involved in that trial, and we were involved actually in all four trials that I've mentioned so far, but those other trials are now closed. The next trial that I'll talk about is uh, something that's very exciting that you may have heard about, and that's called the ARGUS, A-R-G-U-S, two retinal prosthesis, Argus two retinal prosthesis. The results of this were recently uh, announced and the, med and the retinal prosthesis was approved on February 13th of 2013. Mark Hamayan at uh, USC has been uh, largely involved with this, but now there's multiple centers that are involved, including international sites. In this prosthesis, there's multiple components, there is a small video camera. There is a transmitter mounted on a pair of glasses. There's a video processing unit that's wore on the patient's belt. And, of course, there's an implanted retinal prosthesis that has 60 electrodes. This is a surgical procedure, and currently it's FDA-approved for patients that have severe retinitis pigmentosa with either no light perception, meaning they can't see light and the brightest light that's shown, uh, that's shown into their eye, they're unable to detect it, or they can barely see the light. It's not clear and they can't tell which direction it's coming from. The reason it's approved for patients with such severe disease is that the procedure doesn't lead to 
excellent vision, meaning it's not that you can get this prosthesis and start seeing, being able to drive, for example. But when they looked at patients that had this implant, many of them were able to uh, recognize shapes, recognize doors and steps, and be able to recognize some of the largest letters. So it did show that it led to better functional uh, outcome and visual outcome in patients that had it. The cost of this is very expensive. It's about $100,000 per device, and currently the details of how uh, this will be paid for and who will be doing it is being figured out. But as you can imagine, this is an incredibly, incredibly huge development to be able to have a retinal prosthesis and implant that can help patients that otherwise can't see even their light. It's currently, like I said, uh, approved only for patients with retinitis pigmentosa greater than the age of 25 years. All right, moving on. Another thing that applies to many patients are the ARED multivitamins. Patients with dry macular degeneration have for years been told to take these vitamins to slow the progression of their macular degeneration. The original ARED formula which stands for age-related eye disease study formula, contains vitamin C, vitamin E, beta-carotene, and zinc. The ARES-2 trial, which was just uh, discussed at the ARVO uh, meeting, looked at the addition of beta-carotene and omega fatty acids and taking out the addition of lutein and zeaxanthine and omega-3 fatty acids and taking out beta-carotene and also and looked at lowering the dose of zinc. And what the study found is that taking out beta-carotene and replacing it with lutein and zeaxanthine actually led to 20% more protection towards progression, especially when combined with omega-3 fatty acids. The dose of lutein that they studied was 10 milligrams, and the dose of the omega-3 fatty acids was 1 gram. In this trial, the reason there was interest in lowering or stopping beta-carotene is because beta-carotene has been associated with lung cancer in smokers, and the reason there was an interest in lowering the zinc dose is because zinc has been shown to cause stomach upset in some patients. So with this new ARES-2 formulation, although the benefits of lutein and omega-3 fatty acids were thought to be much greater, so there was some disappointment that it was not, at least we found that we can safely use these vitamins and take out the beta-carotene and take away this whole confounding factor about the risk of possible lung cancer in patients that have a history of smoking. Dr. Diani, did the um, ARED study 2, did that show any type of protective uh, measure where a person who does not have macular degeneration and takes it, does it seem to have any protective effect? No, so it hasn't, it wasn't studied in that, but the ARES-1 trial, when they looked at patients with even the, the, the with very earliest macular degenerative changes, uh, even in those patients, it didn't show benefit. So what you can extrapolate from that is two things. One is that someone that doesn't have macular degeneration is very unlikely to benefit. But the other thing that you can also take away from this is that these vitamins in generally are safe, and if you and if they are affordable to the patient, if they have multiple risk factors, for example, early drusen, family history, 
or a previous past history of smoking, then one can argue that perhaps taking these vitamins for an extended period of time, 10, 15, 20 years, may lower the chance when in these trials, of course, they only look at a certain number of years, five years. So they could be missing some protective effect. But in general, I, I would say patients that have no signs of macular degeneration in their eye, meaning they've seen someone, have had a dilated exam, and have been told that their eyes look good, I think there's probably not a, a good evidence that they need to take it. I would say in those patients, risk modification is most important, which would be uh, healthy diet, clean leafy vegetables, uh, fish, a diet with fish, uh, not smoking, controlling the blood pressure. Those are all things that have been shown to affect it. And uh, can you share some information about what is the latest with stem cells? People read a lot of different things about stem cells, and I think a lot of times people get a bit confused with all of the different uh, announcements that are often made on television. Perfect segue. I'm getting there. Uh, let me just say one quick, well, I'll skip a couple of things. I'll get to gene therapy, and then I'll go to stem cells. The gene therapy is very brief. The gene therapy has been largely studied in Lieber's congenital amaurosis, which is a congenital condition that uh, sense in childhood with severe vision loss and eye movements called nystagmus. Currently, there's trials looking at gene therapy also in retinitis pigmentosa, Stargardt's disease, which is a hereditary form of degeneration involving the macula in the retina, and Usher syndrome, which is a, a, a variant of retinitis pigmentosa. So there's exciting developments in research in gene therapy. The first six patients that have had gene therapy with Lever's congenital amaurosis were found to have good tolerance. This is from the ARVO as well and found that there was some functional improvement in their vision, meaning their eye movements became less, and there was some improvement on the vision function test that they were performing. So although this is early, it's very encouraging, and it's encouraging that it's being performed for other conditions that I just mentioned. Stem cell treatment, uh, uh, the main company that's doing this is called Advanced Cell Technology, there are currently three clinical trials that are being done in the United States and in Europe. Each trial involves 12 patients. They're divided into four groups, and each group gets different doses of cells that are injected and implanted under the retina. This is a surgical procedure. It's done in the operating room, and these are human embryonic stem cells that are derived from the retinal pigment epithelium cells, and the RPE cells, the retinal pigment epithelium cells, are the cells that everybody has directly under the retina. So if you see your retina doctor and you see that picture, it looks orange and dark, the retina is clear. There's no color. The, the color that you see comes from those RPE cells, and those cells are what keep the retina healthy. They maintain it, and they uh, nurture it, essentially, and part of the problem with macular degeneration, the main problem actually, is that these cells become uh, weak and degenerate. These cells are all considered to be cells they can divide and form into other cells, and that's how these embryonic stem cells are derived. During the surgical procedure, anywhere from 50,000 all the way up to 200,000 of these cells are injected directly in the macula. 
the final, the, the results that we all want to see are still pending. We don't have the final results, so there's no good evidence how effective this is going to be. Uh, initially, it was being studied at in patients with advanced dry macular degeneration and Stargardt's disease, and now some patients with wet macular degeneration are being included as well. The new development that was released this April, April 15th, is that they are now also including patients with better vision. In the beginning, they were only putting people that had very advanced disease, very poor vision, less than 2,400, and now they're including patients in the trials with even 2,100 vision. So you don't have to wait for the disease to be so advanced. And part of the reason they want to treat patients earlier in the course is that they may have a higher chance of being able to rescue these cells that are uh, deteriorating. One other thing that was re uh, just announced in the last month was, again, so the final results are pending because these studies are pending. They're ongoing and they're still recruiting patients. Uh, the main centers for this are in Philadelphia, the Will's Eye Center, Moorfields in London, and UCLA as well. Um, but on May 15th, they, uh, they announced that they had one patient that had a huge success that went from 2,400 to 2,040. So there, there appears to be isolated cases of success. We're still pretty far from the point where we all are hoping for, which is having this be a routine available treatment. I don't think this is uh, uh, something that uh, in the very near future is going to be readily accessible and available, uh, but as we fine-tune it, as we find out how many cells need to be injected, what's the safest way of injecting it, um, and what's the best way of maintaining those cells, uh, it, it should be more and more helpful. Uh, Dr. Dining, when these stem cells are being injected underneath the macula in these clinical trials, what is the hope that these stem cells will become additional retinal pigment epithelial cells, or are they going yes. to be photoreceptor cells? No, RPE cells that can help nourish and, and, and maintain the health of the retina. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Let's see, does anybody have questions for Dr. Diane? I know we're getting close to the end of our telephone uh, conference, but this is really some really very, very great information, and it sounds like yeah. things are a lot better for people uh, with macular degeneration where they may not need as many injections. Is that right, Dr. Diani? Say that again? What was the last it, it, seems, it seems that with the new development of the VEGF trap that patients who do receive injections may not need it as frequently. Uh, yes, but I would say that with caution because I have many patients that are getting ILEA every four weeks. I have some patients that get Avacin or Lucentis every three months. So everyone's different. There's going to be some patients, and I have them, that respond better to Lucentis, some that respond better to Avacin, and some that respond better to ILEA. I guess what I would take as the most encouraging from uh, takeaway from this is that, one, there's another option because, as we know, not everyone responds to everything. There's 5% of patients that could lose vision despite treatment. And, uh, uh, and that in the, you know, in, in the patient that does show a good response to this VEGF trap treatment, they may require you know, fewer treatments because they'll last longer in the eyes. Great. Thank you. Okay. Questions for Dr. Diani? Yeah. Kathy Lyons. Okay, and, Kathy, go ahead, Kathy, please. Um, I am one of three female siblings who has gyrate atrophy, 
-hmm. And I was just wondering if there was anything new in that field. There's nothing new that I'm aware of, but as you as you can see, how they're extending the applications of uh, uh, first of all, very rare and interesting disease. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, and patients often, uh, if they're diagnosed uh, uh, correctly, have fascinating pictures, and I'm sure every doctor you see wants to look at your eye. Uh, yeah. uh, but uh, as these uh, medicines are shown to be more effective. We start. They'll be able to be naturally applied to other indications. So, for example, when Avastin and Lucentis were first being used, they were used for wet macular degeneration. Then we started using them for vein blockages, then for diabetes, and uh, then for uveitis and eye inflammation. So, once we start seeing that something works and we find a safe way of using it we start extending its application. And same thing is what's happening with these stem cells. Initially, it was um, uh, star guard, then macular degeneration, then dry, then wet. And, and, and same thing with gene therapy. It started out with levers and now retinitis pigmentosa. So the, ret so the indications uh, will continue to increase, and hopefully at, if these things are shown to be beneficial, that hopefully it will apply to conditions uh, like yours. But as of now, I, there's none that I'm aware of. I'm finding it very difficult to find doctors other than ophthalmologists that know anything at all about this condition. Is that typical? In yes, and in fact, I'm you know I'm surprised that you've been able to find ophthalmologists that are aware of it. Many ophthalmologists probably aren't aware of it either. It's a uh, you know it's something that uh, is just uh, very uncommon, and especially um, when you're talking about uncommon with specific eye manifestations, uh, I would, I would, I'm not surprised that most general doctors aren't aware of it. Right. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, this is Can you hear me? Yes, Hello? we can hear you. Yes. Yes, go ahead, I please. I have a question on this device, a prosthetic device being produced in Germany, which is a very high resolution compared to Arcus 2. Do you know any status on that? I'm not sure I, under, I heard the question fully. I, I believe the question is that he is aware of another device with very high resolution that is better than the Argus 2, Argus 60, and this was, I believe, developed in Europe. Yes, yeah. in Germany. It's yeah. 7,000, I mean, 1,500 pixels. I actually met one of the researchers on this uh, at a meeting at Duke in the last year who presented uh, their data. Uh, what, I don't know the details of it, and I, I don't believe that it's being currently used in any of the trials in the United States, uh, but the research that he presented was very impressive, and, uh, and certainly as, as more trials with that specific imp, uh, prosthesis are available, it, you know, it would be interesting for us to see how it compares in the results. But, yes, I agree with you that, that, that there, there is a, a group in Germany, and there's actually another group as well, um, that are looking at other prostheses. Thank you. Thank you. Doctor? Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, Mary Lou Baracco here from uh, Chatsworth. I have macular degeneration in my left eye. I've been on Avastin for two years now, and it's been working very successfully for me. And the last time I had it was over a year ago. I haven't had to have any injections. And uh, my question is... Uh, Will they keep using Avastin? Because I know there have been quest, uh, speculation that at times, like 
the Senate was talking about, well, they didn't want to use Avast, and they thought they were saying, well, for breast cancer and then for all other researches, they thought of maybe discontinuing Avast. And, and then also another thing is my insurance company, uh, they give me a hard time when, you know, they say, well, is she gonna, when is this going to stop? And the doctor says, well, this isn't going to stop. It's a condition that it's going to be terminal. She's going to have to need this shot. She's not going to be cured. It's not cured overnight. And, uh, you know, they keep going after it, you know, and they said, you know, this condition, you know, these shots are going to be all the time. It's going to be an ongoing process. And you go with the insurance company and they think, well, well, you know, she's worn her medical with this. And, you know, how is this, you know, are there ever going to be, even with Obamacare, are they ever going to work with this to change anything? Well, you bring up a lot of the logistical points that we deal with every day. There's a lot of insurance issues with this, um, and uh, unfortunately sometimes these issues can translate into delay in getting patients appropriate care. So everything you said are things that, I, that we deal with on a daily basis, and it's unfortunate because sometimes it can lead to permanent changes that we can't then undo. Um, macular degeneration, as you correctly stated, is a lifelong condition. We can't stop or reverse age, and it's an age-related condition. In the trials, when they looked at patients receiving monthly injections for three years, mm -hmm. these abnormal blood vessels that are the cause of the leaking and bleeding don't melt, they don't go away, they don't disappear. In fact, many of them continue to grow even though patients received 36 injections in three years. Now, having said that, many patients can be uh, tapered uh, either to infrequent injections or to holding their injections and observing, but I, even those patients can always get a recurrence at any time. It can be months or years later. Well, that's what a doctor had told, you know, the insurance company because they thought I was an old, they said, well, she's very young. What are you doing? You know, you're trying to do something illegal here. And he said no, and he explained, you know, she is a rare form and, uh, you know, my optic, and he explained everything. He said, I'll be willing to, you know, email you her pictures to show you. And he says, I'm not lying. I'm very legitimate on this. <laughs> you know, but it was, it just was unbelievable. They thought, you know, like they said, she's over 60. No, no. He said he was very, you know, Passion, he says, no, I'm, I'll talk to your doctor. I'll send you pictures, everything. This woman has a very rare form. Yeah. Of course, you know, everybody, not everyone presents uh, at the same time. And, you know, Dr. Solis was earlier talking about, you know, the curves and the averages, uh, same thing. You know, there's going to be great variability. Some patients will show sooner. Some patients will show later. And uh, there are other forms of macular degeneration that just aren't age-related. They can be nearsightedness, so myopic macular degeneration, and even patients that can have inflammatory uh, membranes. So I see patients with inflammation, and I've seen seven-year-olds that have uh, membranes that need injections. So uh, I agree with you. Okay, let's take, we have time for one more question. One more question for Dr. Diani. Doctor, this is Tom from Wyoming. Hi. Earlier, earlier you talked about the Argus prosthetic uh, retina. Has there, has there been any thoughts of maybe using that in the treatment of uveitis? Um, well, 
good question. I guess it would depend on why you would be using it for uveitis. So if someone has had uveitis that's completely wiped out their nerve function uh, and that there's a, a, uh, they have no nerve or retinal nerve function, then once it gets approved, you know, like other things that we were talking about, I'm sure people will try to find ways to use it off-label, although having said that, this is such an expensive device that it's going to be hard to do that. I mean, we, it, it, it'll be very challenging. Uh, but if someone has lost vision from active inflammation, meaning there's still inflammation in the eye, then certainly putting, doing a big surgery would be uh, very dangerous and would aggravate that inflammation. So it would depend on why they lost their vision and if their inflammation is active or inactive. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Dr. Donnie, do you have any contact information that you'd be willing to share with our listeners? LARetina.com. So LARetina.com. And you can see all of our doctors and there's a way to email us and post questions. And my personal email is just pdayani, P-D-A-Y-A-N-I, at LARetina.com. Okay, pdianilaretna.com. Great. Well, thank you very much. This was excellent information, exactly what we wanted. And I want to thank all of you for joining this evening. Uh, especially like to thank Mr. Dick Burden from Airs LA for recording this. this. And these podcasts are available at www.cclvi.org. It's also going to be on the Airs LA webpage at www.airsairsla.org. And it's also going to be on ACB Radio on Friday nights at 7 Pacific, 10 Eastern. So I want to thank all of you very, very much, and we hope that you'll join us next month when we talk about low vision filters to improve your vision. So, again, thank you very much, everybody, and good night.